0: Ultimately, we tripled ARR in about 18 months and then sold the company to LinkedIn and what was a pretty good outcome, I think, for all involved, not just the exit itself, but yeah, the success we had and the validation of the decision that we made. It's probably the thing I'm most proud of professionally that I've done. That validation
1: must feel good. I, I know the money is nice when you make an exit, but there was a lot of time that had to pass to come yeah. back around to say, hey, good job. That was the right thing to do.
0: Two things that I I learned in that process. One, again, it's a little overused, but like celebrate the wins. In that transitionary period, like big deals matter. They mattered even more to us. Like it was not just validation for the business, but validation for the rest of the employees that like, all right, we did make the right decision. I am on board a company that I'm excited about that has really interesting outcomes. Is this thing on?
1: Yesterday's price is not today's price. Yes, indeed, Fat Joe. Yes, indeed. Welcome to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and operations. Today, my guest is Matt Gallatin, CFO of Stack Overflow, the largest online community for developers and one of the most popular websites in the world. Among his many other CFO roles, Matt also served at the financial helm of Drawbridge, which was acquired by LinkedIn. On this episode, we cover why doing SAS 101 learning sessions with departments across your org is so impactful, the concept of a customer lifecycle review and how a CFO can get involved, how to make revenue lines real to technical folks throughout the organization, making bet the company type moves, and a number of stories from a CFO career that demonstrate high stress decision-making in action. Matt takes us back to a specific moment at Drawbridge on this podcast where they made a bold move to shut down a line of business that made 90% of the company's revenue. It was a true burn the ships type move that you don't hear about so often. And on a lighter note, Matt and I nerd out on our favorite benchmarking reports and riff on what we've learned from the hundreds of hours we've spent in the depths of company S1s. All this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. Well, you know what I always say, maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. (laughs) I'm there right now. But there is a solution, and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using Theropass's compliance and audit solution. Theropass is the only solution using AI-infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with ThoroughPass. From onboarding with dedicated experts, to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs, you can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. ThoroughPass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to HITRUST and SOC2 to ISO 27001. Woo! If you need PCI, DSS, Pen tests or any other major compliance framework, ThoroughPass can hook you up. With ThoroughPass, you never need to worry again. Relax, we fix audits. Find more at ThoroughPass.com. That's T H O R O P A S S.com. Tell them your boy CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. Matt, thank you for joining the number three podcast in Zambia. I appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, no, great. Thanks for having me on, CJ. So I wanted to start out with a concept that me and you have bounced around a bit offline. And that's tying together the SaaS model for the whole company. And it's, it's one of those things that I go through every day, just trying to explain to people how we make money and, and why we're parking certain resources in certain areas. Can you just talk about why it's important to tie together the entire operating
0: model across the company and, and not just focus on sales? Yes. I think in particular in this environment that we've been in over the last 18 months or so, I think it's really important for you know, everyone in the organization to understand one, the vernacular of SaaS, two, the operations right. of SaaS, and like three, what makes a good SaaS company good. I think it's really important for the CFO is in a position where he or she sits at the nexus of all this information. And we sort of take for granted this idea that everything stitches together, that you know, leads convert to pipeline, convert to bookings, convert to ARR, convert to revenue, convert to profit, and then convert, then they have upsells and renewals and all these things associated with it, like CFOs and finance teams intuitively understand that because that's the whole model. But if you think about that process, marketing has a piece, sales has a piece, CS has a piece, underneath it, product and engineering and DevOps have a piece, you know, some of which is maybe a standard deviation away removed from the actual sort of go to market motion. But everyone's sort of complicit or associated with this process. But everyone's so subsumed in their day jobs of doing that marketing lead or building pipeline or launching the product that they don't always see that interconnectivity, that overlap and that sequencing between all of the different parts. And so I think it's incumbent upon finance to sort of raise that profile and highlight that for the organization.
1: Since we last met Matt, I've actually done two SaaS 101 combos, one with the product team and one with the engineering team. Can you tell the audience what a SaaS 101 combo is and what usually goes down?
0: Yeah, so it's something that I, and this this came out of, it was a call that I was on and talking to the head of marketing at a company I was at and, and sort of talking about sort of the upsell motion and product skews and things like that. And it was just completely foreign to her to think about she knew what NRR was, but like this idea that the product portfolio will eventually impact NRR. And I was like, well, that it sort of seems intuitive to me. But again, that marketing person in that role and that function is thinking about brand and white papers and pipeline and not necessarily how does our product portfolio impact net dollar retention. And that was an, a fairly senior person at the company. I was like, well, if, if she doesn't understand it, then <laughs> there probably are probably a lot of other people that don't understand it. And so, I literally did a SAS, what I called SAS 101 training session where, you know, I started with the vernacular of SAS, the acronyms of SAS. What does ARR mean? What is ACV? What is TCV? What are the differences? ARR, NRR, you know, because we, we bandy about these terms, like everyone understands it and people understand the term that's most relevant for them, but not sort of all the other terms. Then like, you know, okay, why do these things matter? What what do investors look at from a metrics perspective? How do we compare at our company relative to best in class? What is rule of 40, rule of X? All these things that people read about in TechCrunch, trying to sort of again piece it all together and make it more consumable for them as it reflects in their day job. And then you know, I have a very rudimentary process workflow of like really first touch to renewal and churn for a customer and overlay onto that, who has an influence at each stage of that? And people, I think, intuitively understand well, sales and marketing have the pipeline and the bookings piece, but product and DevOps also have an impact on renewal and retention because if there are outages or the product doesn't work, customer churns off, right? It's not just a CS issue churn, but it could be a product issue or a DevOps issue or or any number of different issues. Just sort of highlighting that, that everyone touches different parts of this process. You know, missing your bookings number is not just a sales issue. There's a lot of underlying issues that ultimately impact that. And some have accused me of pandering to sales, which it's fine. I'm willing to accept that. But I do think it's important for the whole organization to see like, how does their day job influence the outcomes of the business? And I
1: had this kind of come to Jesus moment, if you will, where we go through net dollar retention rate is one of our like four most important metrics, the company. And I realized the way that somebody pretty important was talking about it was like, oh no, they don't understand what's going into that or like how it's moving, but we're talking about it every week. That's my fault that I didn't show them what goes into that. And it was a big like, whoa, I got to take a step back here.
0: Yeah, I think people are smart enough to figure out the math, but then when you disaggregate the numerator numerator and the denominator into the component pieces of what actually influences it, yeah, it's not just whether a CS person is good or bad or is effective at their job or less effective at their job. That's certainly part of it, but there's a lot of other inputs that go into that that are not specifically related to that call the CS person just had. There's a, a lot of inputs that influence whether someone will upsell or whether someone's gonna churn. And I think it's important for everyone to sort of understand how they can influence that. And I think it helps not just the executive team, but you know, managers, the directs of directs and even further down, like to make them feel like, well, if NRR is really that important, I have an idea that I think may influence NRR positively. And so I now know like that decision or that input that I have can have a meaningful impact on the business.
1: Another way this impacted my business was I was talking to the engineering team and one of the members perked up and realized like, oh no, I'm working on a product line that's responsible for like 80% of the company's revenue. Right, And that made them feel like, wow, I'm doing something big here that's very meaningful and the impact I'm having day-to-day shows up in revenue. I'm not just submitting code, like this is very crucial for what we do.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that you know, taking away that, that abstraction of like, a new customer win is just whether sales performed or not. Or you know, really, it's like if we miss our bookings number. It, yes, there's some sales issues, but it's not right. only sales, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's important for people to sort of you know when we over-index, everyone high-fives, sales gets a little less credit. It's like a quarterback in the NFL. They, when you win, they get way too much credit. When you lose, they get too much criticism. But yeah, I think it's important for people to sort of intuit and understand that. You know, I, I found interestingly, it's probably, it shouldn't be surprising doing these SAS 101s, I've had to do SAS 201 sessions because engineers really want to dig into things and that's part of their DNA. But I found them to be generally the most receptive and most inquisitive about the approach the metrics, the math, but also then to your point, understanding like, hey, the thing I'm working on impacts this hugely important product feature. So it's important for me to get it right. The team that I had the most fun talking to is the product team
1: because they were coming up with different product ideas on how to reduce churn. I don't know if you've ever had experiences like that where you start to go through these metrics or why certain levers in your SaaS model are important and you actually end up getting ideas back on how to improve it. I was like, why did I wait so long to actually talk to (laughs) people about this? Before you started doing these sessions, were you a bit skeptical about talking to technical people about like the financial part of the model? How did you square that up with
0: who to talk to? So, yes. How do I convey this is more than just a math exercise. And I think you can go through the list of SaaS metrics and here's the math to do them. So, anyone can do it, but translating that into, again, what people think about and how they approach things in their day job and how they can start to associate their specific non-financial activities with Mm -hmm. financial outcomes. And so, yeah, there's the inherent skepticism of like finance is just the numbers guy and he's it's binary. We either meet it or we don't. And there's certainly that element of finance, but there's also a ton of nuance underneath it, as you know, right? There's a lot of things that go into whether we underperform or outperform a specific metric. And so, you know, making that consumable and having the foresight to try to associate the metric or the outcome with what they do of like trying to just sort of associate their job and like sort of meeting them halfway on like, I'm not just the finance guy sitting in this ivory tower doing these things. I'm trying to understand. And I'm interested in what you're doing. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. I'm I'm interested in what you're doing. You had mentioned a customer
1: lifecycle review. Can you break down what goes into that?
0: Yeah, really, it's just like those multiple touch points of, and and this is, you know, ultimately, this is where the rubber meets the road. Like, there's a whole process to get a customer signed up to buy your product and pay. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens to get them to actually use it and engage with it and, and then get value out of it. And that's the part I think that people, you know, like sales close their deal, high five, product builds the marketing package, engineering pushes their code out, and like everything... Sort of like everyone sort of, I've done, I've done my job, but like ultimately is the customer using the product and getting the the commensurate amount of value out of it that you sold them on becomes really important. And that's where I think support matters, CS matters, sales matters, product matters. Engineering matters. And so breaking that down to sort of component pieces and again, showing like there's as much sort of engineering and product dependency in that first year of your contract as there is sales, maybe, maybe more, right? Because sales closed the deal. Now the product actually needs to work. And so the engineers are therefore, you know, the code they built 6 months ago really matters now because the customers using it. A lot of it's visual in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. This is all like it's a very basic like it's a finance guy trying to do marketing stuff, so it's like a lot it, it of bar is. charts and boxes, but it it's totally yeah. it's, it's just a graphic that sort of shows I don't break down each sort of like, you know, time period into like who does what when because there's so many concentric overlaps between how the customer is engaging with your product and who at the organization is responsible for that piece of that engagement. But yeah, it's it's all visual. It's, it's more just to sort of get people to understand versus create these sort of handoffs that need to happen.
1: I have gone down to the second level and it was dangerous as a finance guy getting in the weeds and (laughs) we were trying to visually map out each step in the customer onboarding process. But then what we did as the second layer was we labeled what the time was between each of them and then who the person was. And we had a couple of revelations that like, oh, wow, it's taking that much time to get the value for the customer. Maybe we're not actually budgeting for the right resources in the right spots to make it faster.
0: Totally, and I think that you know those sorts of discussions are the right ones because, you know, if you're at 10 million of ARR and you want to get to 100 million of ARR, that problem that you just highlighted gets exponentially worse at scale. Yeah, with more and, throughput, it'll break. And, and absolutely, and so that that then starts to be less about well, how many support or CS resources do we have, but how do we think about the product roadmap in terms of reducing that timeline? making it more automated, lack of a better word. But how do we create a process a year from now that requires half the number of humans and a lot more technology?
1: We also called out some single points of failure, which were pretty scary that we didn't know before. I don't know if you've ever looked at that before. You're like, wow, this is like shoelaces and bubble gum keeping this together. Like if this one person goes on vacation, like we're not gonna be able to onboard a client.
0: Yeah, like please don't let person X leave. Um, (laughs) and, and, And you know, usually those people... Like if they knew how much influence they had, they'd be a lot less nice about things. Right? Yeah. They, would, they would use that leverage. For the most part of my experience, they're aware of that and are generally good corporate citizens. But yeah, it's it creates some issues. Hey, thanks for
1: listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR, the real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and revrec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit maxio.com slash run the numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the Run the Numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. The next thing I wanted to talk about, Matt, is... You worked at a company called Drawbridge, where you're the CFO, and you made a variable move to shut down a line of business that made up around 90% of the company's revenue. I had to read it three times when you sent it to me. Yeah. Can you take us through that decision?
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll provide some context on the business first. I think it'll set the foundation. So you think about it, companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon... You're pervasively. you're always logged in to their services across multiple devices. So, you know, they know when you're engaging with their content on your mobile phone, on your iPad, on your work computer, your home computer, your connected TV. And then they know that the person who's living with you on all these other devices is engaging with their content and using their services. And they know those are separate people, separate devices, even though they might be very close to each other. So they have first party deterministic data. That's the value exchange we've given to them. You give us the service for free, we'll give you this first-party data. Vast majority of other companies don't have that deterministic data, nor the scale that they have. And so what Drawbridge was able to do was essentially build probabilistic profiles. We would take all this data and using some algorithms and machine learning, build these anonymized user profiles. So we would be able to say... Person ABC has this device, that device, this connected TV, and then another person sitting next to them in the same Wi-Fi address, IP address, has this device, the other device, the other iPad. We think these devices belong to these people, and we think these people are different. And we were able to do that with like ninety plus percent accuracy. So when we would compare wow. it, so so highly accurate, but it was all anonymous. And so eventually, over time, we built this graph that we called it three hundred million users globally in 2 billion devices. So we were able to associate a pretty large chunk of people again who we thought these individuals were and which devices they were using. And and so the initial monetization strategy was using that to provide a ad tech offering, a managed service offering where we would work with agencies and brands to run their advertising campaigns. You know one of the great things about the ad tech ecosystem, really low barriers to entry, so you can you can get dollars and revenue coming in pretty quickly. It's also one of the bad things about it because like anyone can disintermediate you all the time and the dollars can go away. And so we were able to build the business to a pretty decent size scale. And alongside that, we started to get customers coming to us and saying, hey, I don't necessarily want to run an ad campaign, but I'm really interested in that data that you have about who you think my users might be. So can I just get a piece of the data? And so we would say, sure. We'd sort of slice off a piece of data and license that to them. And so over about a year period, we built that to about a 10 million AR business. And so the ad business, Google, Facebook, Amazon sort of sucks all the oxygen out of the room. It was getting yeah. harder and harder to scale and grow. Like our average deal sizes were declining. All the efficiency metrics were declining. So even to grow revenue a little bit, we we're going to have to throw a lot more resources at it. And ad tech multiples aren't great. It's an undifferentiated product. The ad piece of it. The real asset of the business was this, you know, software that we had built and this graph that we had built. And so, you know, we spent a year sort of analyzing the business, understanding the business, putting that in context for the board, our existing investors, and the leadership team, and said, like, we think this ad business is not strategic at all, that the real asset of the company is this graph that we've built and this data as a service model that we've think we've proven out. And so whether revenue is good or bad, getting rid of 90% of your revenue is hard. And so we essentially shut down the ad business. We sold a little piece of it to a third party, sort of a very small sort of asset sale. You know, unfortunately, got rid of about a third of our organization that was associated with that business. The word pivots, an overused word, but really refocused the business on this data as a service model that we were building. And so while we had some proof points about it, you know, it was sort of a... BD's founder-led negotiated sale, like, could we actually build a robust go-to-market, repeatable go-to-market motion? Can we build a product portfolio that evolves this over time? Can we scale and grow this business and invest behind it to get to sort of a meaningful outcome from a revenue perspective? So yeah, it was a pretty big burn the boat kind of moment. You know, we, we, we had nothing, nothing of a legacy business left and really focused on this new, what we hope to be value driver for the business and made that decision sort of mid part of my tenure at the company. So about 18 months into my tenure there. When you hear about these moves, the initial gut
1: reaction is to say, wow, like there must've been this huge, this one point in time where you had to just make a decision, but it sounds like you analyzed it for a while, almost a year. So it wasn't like it was just a gut punch where you had to just shift quickly or or was it? Correct me if I'm wrong.
0: The magnitude of the change, it wasn't just sort of like, you know, we'll get rid of one product line and focus on this other product line. Yeah. It was a it was a completely different sort of product, go to market motion, organizational structure, and obviously, like the board really pushed us on it. Right? Is this the right decision? As did the other investors, we would have done it anyhow. But we, you know, certainly felt a compulsion to make sure we did as rigorous an analysis as we could. Intuitively, I think we all felt it was the right decision to make. Yeah. Just due to sort of macro factors, the reality of the business. But putting the math together and really analyzing why you make the decision, we spent a lot of time debating that and and went through some pretty rigorous analysis around it. It's a brave move because a lot of companies
1: wait too long to cannibalize themselves.
0: Yeah. You know, in hindsight, we probably waited a little too long. I think everyone Um, waits a little too long. (laughs) Like everyone. But I've also been at companies where we never make the decision. And ultimately, credit to our CEO and the board and the rest of the leadership team to make that decision. And then, you know, execute afterwards, right? Yeah, it's only half of it. You still have to go build the business. <laughs> yeah, it's like, crap, now we, we really did catch the tiger by the tail here. And now what do we do? And so we had to really change or go to market motion, product portfolio. The core engineering, like the core asset was largely the same This graph we had built. But now sort of the product layer that we were using to monetize that asset needed to be changed. We had built this sort of, again, like, you know, curated, bespoke, manual process to sort of get data to third parties. But, you know, how do we build like a self-service product? How do we get it integrated into other third parties and partners on a more automated sort of API basis? How do we build a go-to-market motion that is a SaaS business model with how do we build comp plans, right? How do we do all of these things of becoming a SaaS business midway through the life cycle of the company? And then needless to say, like, Capital constraints are different, like banking requirement, like we had a line of credit with a bank and that was sort of like making that pivot and that shift they weren't super comfortable with. So like we were walking the razor's edge there on, on sort of that relationship and that negotiation. So there was a lot that had to happen just to set the foundation in place for the new business, let alone sort of scale it and monetize it and grow it. And then ultimately. We tripled ARR in about 18 months and then sold the company to LinkedIn. And what was a pretty good outcome, I think, for all involved, not just the exit itself, but the success we had and the validation of the decision that we made. It's probably the thing I'm most proud of professionally that I've done.
1: That validation must feel good. I I know the money is nice when you make an exit, but just you made a decision that had a very long... There was a lot of time that had to pass to come back around to say, Hey, good job. That was the right thing to do.
0: Two things that I, I learned in that process. One, again, it's a little overused, but like celebrate the wins. In that transitionary period, like big deals matter. They mattered even more to us. Like it was not just validation for the business, but validation for the rest of the employees that, like, all right, we did make the right decision. I am on board a company that I'm excited about that has really interesting outcomes. And then, Secondly, like you can't repeat enough why you made the decision. You can't over communicate and you can't do it frequently enough to remind people this is why we made the decision. Like when things got a little bumpy, there was like some nostalgia for the old business. And we're like, look, the old business wasn't all that great, it was what you knew and what you're quite comfortable with. But it wasn't all that great of a business. Like, let's not forget that piece. And so that was the message in that situation. But the overall theme and learning is like, repeat that message over and over, whatever it might be, and whatever state the business is in, and just remind people like, why you're here, why what you're working on is important. You can't repeat it and reinforce it enough.
1: One of the messages I feel like I'm always repeating is that not all revenue is created equal.
0: Yes. What was that conversation like? How do I abstract like, market multiples on ads versus SaaS to like the constituents inside the organization that that don't necessarily sort of follow this, you know, day in, day out. Um, Right. And, you know, it was showing some basic math, like these companies that we all sort of knew or viewed as peers in the ad tech market that... Maybe they had gone public or there was press about it of like, look, this is not a great business relative to other companies that are more analogous to the SaaS business. And look what they're doing and look at the kind of multiples that they're getting. And less about like, you know, is it 4X versus 8X, but really like growth and trajectory, right? Sure. Like what's valuable to these businesses? The ad tech business, there's no repeatability at all, right? Like no, if one if, time. If you know anything ab- about the business, it's like, 90 day insertion orders, that's great. You run a campaign, you restart at zero. Like maybe they'll renew, but like campaigns change, seasons change. There's no sort of recurring nature to the business. So, new quarter starts, you basically sort of start at zero again. And that's it's a tough slog for people to have to work through relative to SaaS, where you're, as we know, like stacking revenue on top of each other. Things like that, just sort of trying to find a way that makes that consumable to people that they can intuit the value of it. So you probably needed a lot of SaaS one-on-one conversations. There was definitely a lot of SaaS one <laughs> This is like the SaaS summer course. Like, right. this is what a SaaS commission plan looks like.
1: Yeah, like you it, take that for granted. Like, because most companies, when they make a change, it's like, well, it's still SaaS. I can still Correct. use some some of this stuff that I got kicking around, but <laughs> you're literally building it from scratch.
0: Yeah, what do quotas look like? Like, this is the rough ratio. If you look at benchmarks and the fee bank SaaS index, right? These right. sorts of companies at this size pay out this percentage of, this quoted OTE ratio? Or how do we think about upsell? How do we think about churn? Who carries the burden of all, you know, all of those things? Because it was completely different than any other commission plan that we'd had in the organization before.
1: It's such a cool story. Thanks for sharing. And something that you hold near and dear to your heart, you just mentioned it there. It's benchmarks. I always joke that as a kid, I collected baseball cards. Now as an adult, I collect benchmarking reports.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. because uh, Yeah, yeah awesome. feel that's free awesome. to
1: steal it. I probably stole it from someone else. What do you think about using public companies as aspirational benchmarks when you're sitting down to build a three to five year plan?
0: Yeah, I think the key word there is aspirational, right? Public markets are discerning and w- one could argue that not every, well, Certainly, I'm not advocating that every company should be public and every company will be public. There are probably other people who say not every company who is public should be public in the first place. That, mm-hmm. That's a different discussion for a different time. But public markets are discerning. And if you've met that growth and scale criteria to be public, you're doing something right. And so let's use those companies and let's look at the trajectory that they were on you know, two and three years before they went public as a way to sort of calibrate where we are and where we think we can get to in, in some time frame, right? Because everyone starts the three or five-year process, their CEO or the board says, we want a 10X ARR or 10X value or 10X something, right? And for most people, including me, for certainly for, I think, other folks on the leadership team, it's way too abstract for me to think about, right? I can do the math to say 10 times our current ARR gets us to 10X, that's fine. But like, how do I th- even think about operationalizing that? How do I think about what my resource requirements are going to look like as a line manager or the R&D head or head of sales, let alone the CFO? How will I have to be resourced and what does that look like? And how have best-in-class companies dealt with that transition and that change? So the comps are useful. And then, then it becomes, you know, we're in the cybersecurity space, so we should only look at cybersecurity companies. It's like, that, that's a great place to start. But... If you overlay then sort of go to market motion, right, customer segment, right? You right. can you can then start to figure out like who are my real comps that I want to look at. Again, less from a size and scale perspective, but like what can I take from their playbook and their trajectory and apply that to my current business to say, okay, this is what I think needs to happen in the next three years for me to get onto this trajectory that by all accounts, is definition of success, right? Right. My friends over at
1: Virtual Research—they built this cool benchmarking tool. I call it the Wayback Machine. So you can go back and check like what the stub years were for a company yeah. before the IPO. And then you can compare them all, mash them all to like T equals zero. Yeah. And so sometimes like I'm a dork on weekends, I'll be playing around. And I'll be like, what did Datadog look like versus CrowdStrike at like minus one year before? And totally. that type of stuff is always really neat to me to try to size up. Well, what does good look like, like in the run up to an IPO?
0: Exactly. That's exactly the approach that I'm taking. Every company I've been at, we have a model that's IPO minus three, minus two, yeah. minus one. And, you know, that's it's not where they were when they went public. It's the trajectory of how they got there. And how does that trajectory compare relative to where we are as an organization today? What companies have you
1: nerded out and gone super deep on their S1?
0: Datadog is one. I think they they provided a bit more data and insight. So I'll give an example. One of the things that I've used at a couple of different companies, Datadog had a statement in their S1. They had. of the Fortune 100 were customers, but only 20% of those had ARR more than 100K, which to me says they're getting entry into large global institutions, and they're starting with a pretty low ASP, and then one could argue they're then marching them up from a value perspective, right? So they have a land and expand motion. Now, at other companies I've been at, we, we could say, well, we have 35% of the Fortune 100, but our starting point is 750K. Okay, so we have the same percentage, but like, okay, what's our trajectory to get more value out of them? Like, how do we upsell them? And if we're banking on just upselling them more of the same, you know, platform or high ASP, like there's only so many of those we're going to be able to sell. And so, if Datadog a comp, or we aspire to be more like a Datadog, what does that mean from a product portfolio perspective that we need to think about changing or transitioning to, so that we can then still have on-trade to these global 1,000 or you know Fortune 100 customers, but get more value out of them systematically over time? So, how do we think about product portfolio skews, upsell motion, like what does all that look like? Because you know, if we think if we fast forward five years and think we're just going to be able to keep selling. 750k ASP deals to all these companies, we're sort of kidding ourselves because there's only so many of those you're going to be able to get. And so then how do you efficiently grow ARR and revenue when you have a large installed base of existing customers?
1: I love how you're mixing and matching different components of different business models to make it relatable because I do feel like a lot of companies will either go with the sledgehammer approach and just take a generalized benchmark and not cut it down or they'll be like, We're a cybersecurity company in North America, and that's the only thing I can look at. You should really broaden it to say, like, what's your go-to-market motion? How many employees do you have? How many products are you selling? What industry or sector is this? What part of the world is it? Who's the end consumer? What segment is this? Like, You got to actually think a bit broader and then make a comp set that's relative to you.
0: Exactly right. I think it's super important to spend some time, to your point, not just looking at cybersecurity or developer tools or whatever it might be and saying, those are our comps, but rather, you know, if you're an SMB, even though I'm selling to developers, you know, bill.com is probably a better comp for me because they're an SMB self-service sort of go-to-market motion type company. So maybe I my product needs to look a little bit more like that. My go-to-market needs to look a little bit more like that than a large enterprise centric partner dependent type of company that's completely different.
1: Something that I've made the mistake on is I did all my due diligence around like the sales motion and how many employees and what their ARR was, but then like I totally forgot about what the macro environment at the time was. So remember I was comparing like to Twilio or someone like that. And it's like, well, that was 10 years ago. What was like access to capital or interest rates yes, or like exactly. government regulation?
0: Yeah. I think given sort of the dearth of SaaS IPOs over the last 18 months or two years and the foundational change in the environment, right? Like companies that went public in that 2020, 2021 cohort, yeah. their sales efficiency metrics are probably not what you want to benchmark yourself against. Cause I don't think they'll fly in today's marketplace. Right? Yeah. And so there is some calibration that needs to be done, but I think it's an interest, you know, again, if it's like looking to just sort of like put some bounds around the context of what is a three-year plan or a five-year model sort of look like, it's a great jumping off point. And I think, this is where finance needs to getting back to the point we, we talked about a little bit earlier, like meeting people halfway, like help me product, understand your roadmap. And what does that look like? How will that translate into the go to market or how does that compare to other companies so that we can start to sort of tune this a little bit more and make it a bit more specific to us relative to how we want to make investment, what's right for our business, not necessarily, you know, trying to be the next data dog but rather like what's most germane for our business that we should be really leaning into.
1: Yeah. Everyone wants to benchmark themselves against Snowflake, but that's Snowflake,
0: Datadog, CrowdStrike. Yeah, those are awesome. Great. Feel free to do that to be aspirational, but you know, those are unique businesses. You know, CrowdStrike's another one, like their S1 and there's some publications around their sort of roadshow and like their transition from a core platform to sort of a modular solution, like foundationally changed the growth of their business. And like, the way they talk about that and think about that, I think is, again, a reference point. Other companies have made these really hard decisions or again, Ovi's word, like pivoted their product strategy to be able to create long-term sustainable growth that's efficient, not just selling like, I'm gonna sell one giant thing, one monolith thing to all these enterprises because right. it has a really high ASP and my my sales efficiency looks really good right now, but like to scale and grow that, you know, it starts to get harder and harder.
1: What are your favorite sections to dig into within an s one?
0: After a bad day, I like to read the risk, the risk sections, <laughs> glass of wine, like yeah. partially think about like the poor banking associate and paralegal who had to draft yep. all this. But no, it's serious, starting with you know, MDNA section, and really they're focusing on the more detailed and nuanced view of in particular things like margin. And COGS, you know, how did a business go from 70% margins in one year to 80% when they're public? Like, what changed in their business? You know, how did they get more efficient? Certainly, there's revenue scale that changes some of that dynamic. But there's something underneath that that got them to be much more efficient. And then mix of R&D versus sales and marketing. So those two pieces I really try to focus on because that's always one of the debates at every company is we overinvest in sales we underinvest in r&d and vice versa depends who you ask as to where we were over underinvested and you know these can help break some of those ties and just get over that over that hump
1: the age old battle yeah it's funny you bring up risk factors matt so i worked at pwc in their consulting branch my first job out of college and my first assignment was to go through 100 uh 10k's and pull out all the risk factors and inventory them And so like, at first I was like, this is literally the worst project I could have ever inherited. But then once I started to go through it, I noticed that like, yes, 70% of it is like total CYA, cover your ass and filler. But there was like this 30% in there that was like truly what was keeping somebody up at night. And it was very fascinating, the things that a CFO and CEO chose to say that were different than others. And I was like, oh, okay, well that, that has to do with their core strategy.
0: Yeah, I think there's, um, I joked about that, but I do think to your point, there's certainly interesting bits and pieces to that. I think there's also an interesting, it's somewhat comforting to think that, like, yeah. you know, oh, their risk is our risk as well at this point in time, or this is a risk we may need to anticipate if we keep going down this path. And so I think it, it does help to sort of further shine a light on, like, maybe we're not so bad at certain things that we just sort of need mm-hmm. to, and it's it's useful to focus on those things and sort of eliminate some of that risk, less from a, S1 disclosure perspective or a foundational business issue? Like, can we learn something from what they've had to go through or what they're going through right now?
1: Yeah. And I think as a CFO too, it's our job to figure out what level of risk and which specific risks are we comfortable with underwriting? Because if you don't underwrite any risks, then you're not really going to have a company. Like you're not going to be innovative, but it's, what am I cool with saying? Like, yes, we're signing up to potentially be exposed to that. Yeah, totally. There are a lot of benchmark reports out there. Can you hit us with a couple of your favorites? Which ones do you download each year?
0: I think Bessemer's good, better, best frameworks are always yep. really good. One of the companies I worked out was in the scale ventures portfolio. And they were for the, sort of early on one of the, I shouldn't say the first, because I'm sure there were there were others, but sort of more leaned into the finance metrics. So they they had folks who would help put together sort of internal benchmarks and calibrate your various sort of SaaS metrics relative to their portfolio. And they built out this uh, scale Virtual Studio, I think it's called, where basically mm. you can put in your metrics and you can benchmark them to the scale portfolio. Companies sort of see where you are. So a lot of great resources there. And then Iconics done a bunch of work, and you know they've put together research materials for like vertical SaaS or yeah. product like growth SaaS. And so it gets a little bit more again, sort of narrowing the scope of the comps to what might be more relevant to your company at your particular size and stage and i think that's where the you know the vc reports super helpful for like one year two year planning because that's your reality today yeah. and then public market comps s1 comps for your you know year 3 year 5 planning is a good way to sort of think about that barbell strategy the legendary
1: report is the formerly packcrest now keybank yeah. report i think it's like 15 or 16 years running
0: Covid really threw that report for a loop, I think, a little bit because things changed. You know, there was a real sort of bifurcation of some companies that are phenomenally awesome in Covid, and others mm-hmm. did not, and others maybe did towards the later stages once they got their house in order. But it sort of skewed a lot of the data in that Covid period. But yeah, it's sort of the tried and true. I still revert back to some of the old slides. Just to I have them time. all downloaded. Like yeah, the, totally. Yeah. yeah, I'm a weirdo. They're, they're in my Dropbox <laughs> account. You're right
1: just in case like i need to dust one off from 2007
0: well the good thing is like and this is like maybe a, a little bit nefarious but like we'll screenshot something i won't date it but i'll show it to the sales guy and say this is what the benchmarks are showing me <laughs> two percent <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: on like a perpetual software model oh well exactly matt i got a heavy one for you so what do you think separates the good cfos from the great cfos what qualities
0: you know, I think first and foremost, like, being able to hire and retain people. You know, my my greatest successes have been as a result of the people that I've worked with. And so, being able to not just hire good people, but retain them and help them grow. I, I think importantly, you know, having conversations around, like, Honest conversations about career trajectory and like up and out might be perfectly fine. And help me help you figure out how you want to do that so that we can create a pathway and a narrative for you. Because if I can't get you, if you're a controller and you want to be a CFO, like I'm happy to help get you on that trajectory because you're unlikely to get it in your current role. Right. Mm -hmm. But let me help you figure out a way to do that and just be transparent and have those conversations. I really try to force people to have those conversations so that I don't want to get surprised where you're like, I'm giving you my two weeks notice to go take this other job. Like that's the worst case scenario for so many people. And so how do I sort of build or how do I hire, retain, grow and develop talent? I think those are great CFOs who just like, there's like coaching trees in the NFL, yeah. there's, you know, CFO trees and right. How, how can I help people do that? And I like to think that the relations I've built and, and people that, I continue to to try to work with or reach out to and use me as a resource. I've been able to successfully do that. You know, then I think the other, other it's sort of like, how do you create a feeling of partnership with your leadership team? Like, how do you become the first or second person that the head of sales comes to with an idea or the head of product comes to and says, help me think through this issue. How do you become that trusted partner? I think the ones that are able to do that, I mean, the the CFO is morphing into a quasi COO role anyhow. Mm -hmm. So how do I sort of get closer to those operating businesses so that I can help them improve their performance? Because financial performance is a manifestation of operating performance, right? So if I can help people improve their underlying metrics and their underlying operations, All else being equal, we should should see better financial results in near term and long term. And so uh, how do I create that relationship? I think public company CFO is probably a little bit harder because you have different roles and responsibilities, but broadly speaking, startup CFO, like that's what I really try to do and where I think I've had a lot of impact is being that trusted partner to other members of the leadership team. Nice. I love the
1: NFL coaching tree analogy because I've had that visualization in my head of like a great CFO will have other people that go on to do great things. Yeah, but I've never thought about it in the context of the coaching tree. That's so spot on.
0: Yeah, and like I think you know, really encouraging people to do that and facilitating that. Right? How how do I help you get on that trajectory? Like I said, up and out may not be a bad thing. Right? It is for me because I'm going to lose great talent, but I can't not do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think something like in my last job, I had to be honest with myself that if I want to be a CFO, there's only going to be one CFO at this company. And if that one's not leaving anytime soon, then (laughs) I got to find another opportunity. And that's just an honest thing that you have to, you know, probably talk to somebody about.
0: Exactly. Right. And and again, I'd rather have that conversation over weeks and months and years than, you know, you coming to. On the way out the door. On the way out the door. Right. Yeah. That was a good one. All right, Matt, I'm going to take
1: you into what we call our long ass lightning round. So the first question I got for you is, what's an example of something you've screwed up on the job? It could be at any role you've worked at in your life.
0: Yeah, I remember there was one. So we were like the throes of planning, like scrambling the night before to change the plan for the board meeting. And I was talking to the head of product, and we did this like small little tuck in acquisition. And he's like, I can do 25K of MRR. And I was like, okay, fine. 25K goes in every month. MRR, 25K every month. So we're in the board meeting, right? In the presentation, and he's like, "I didn't say 25k of MRR. 25k of ARR is what I can sign up for." So, like, we put together this whole plan, right? And so I was like, "Okay, so now I have to Times go completely twelve un-
1: <laughs> divide by un- twelve, actually."
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so happened. it's like go completely unwind the plan, sort of redo it. And so, yeah, that was kind of painful and embarrassing. Like, it was not you know, he and I, the pet of product and I had a great relationship. So it wasn't like someone was trying to do something nefarious or just complete, like he said something, you know, it was like in that matter of like, I have it in an email, I'm going to change it. And so, you know, I have my get out of jail free card, but like, it didn't necessarily work out that way. So happens um, to the best of us. Yeah. So that was definitely one.
1: If you could tell your younger self something, knowing
0: what you know today, what would you tell him? Live internationally when you're younger. Did you live internationally? I didn't. And it's one of my biggest regrets, right? It it just gets, you know, with a family and, you know, just gets harder to do. It's not impossible to do. It just, it just gets harder. So, you know, if you have an opportunity to, you know, transfer internationally with a big company, take a risk and just sort of pack up and move and do something, I'd encourage it because it's one of my biggest regrets professionally is that I haven't sort of lived internationally and gotten that experience. That's a good one. I too didn't live
1: internationally and Today, I'm saying that would have been cool if I lived in Switzerland or London or something for a while.
0: Exactly. I'm encouraging my kids who are in high school and college to think about that. Go have a croissant in Paris. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack, sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. All right, Matt, can you walk me through your finance software stack? What tools are you using to get the job done?
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty similar to everyone else's. We use Sage Intact for our ERP Dipalti for AP, Flowcast for clothes management, Expensify, Navin for travel, Carta for cap table, Avalara for tax, Zora for CPQ and billing. So pretty standard stuff for the most part.
1: We got some friends of the pod in there. We had Charlie Kevers of Carta on and we had Razak Jalo of Flowcast on. So shout out to them. Good tools. Yeah. Awesome
0: tools. You know, I know Carta is still an awesome tool and I, I value it more from the perspective of like, gone are the days of like the random person asking me like how many shares vested this month can you pull a report for me it's like you can go self-service yeah. at carta like that's the best part of carta you will have to rip carta out of my cold dead hands yeah absolutely yeah
1: <laughs> all right last one i got for you what's the craziest thing you've ever seen someone try to expense
0: it's less of a specific thing but when i first started at a startup so i left yahoo was working at sort of an ad tech media company based in new york the sellers were in new york and I kept seeing these expense reports come in for sunglass parties. And I was like, what? oh, it must be, yeah, so must be like, you know, funniest sunglasses wins or yeah. whatever. So we're going to go get dinner or whatever. Everyone wears their funniest sunglasses, ha, ha, ha. It's like, no, we basically take media planners for drinks and dinner, and then we go to Sunglass Hut and buy them sunglasses. <laughs> Well, I have never heard of that as as an activity with partners. It was uh, activity is sort of a, a generous way of. Uh, we just uh, went of, shopping. Yeah, basically, yeah, exactly. Went shopping. So, sunglass parties was a euphemism for like, yeah, shopping. Just get some uh, Ray
1: Bans and buy some ads. Yeah.
0: You know, being at Yahoo and the corporate finance group, like, I never saw any of this. So, like, it was completely unaware of whatever was going right. on. And so, you know, dropped into startup world and seeing all these expense reports, I'm like, what the heck is going on? Right. So, Can I get a pair at least? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> cool. Matt, this has
0: been a blast.
1: Thank you for all the wisdom and thanks for being generous with your time.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of the uh, of the pods and the videos. Appreciate it, man.
1: Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five
0: stars. I really need this.